it worries him because the anti-vax movement has gotten so large and people are all about, you know, you can't tell me what to do for, uh, for my child. It's like, well, but you, you do it to protect all these other children too. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Diane Windsor. Welcome, Diane. Hi, Ronit. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well, I feel I'm excited to talk with you. And I'm also really, I feel that that what we're going to talk about today is relevant. And I think it's pressing. And I think that it's perfect timing because your book has just come out. So can you talk about how old your son was when he first got diagnosed? So he was 20. This was in June of 2018. And I'll tell you, this kid, his name's Brendan. He's always been my challenge. I have three kids um, two boys and a girl, and he's my youngest. And, you know, I, we all love our kids so much. And sometimes it doesn't matter what we do as a parent, they're just going to do what they want to do. And it doesn't mm-hmm. matter how we punish them or reward them for different behaviors. They're just going to do their own stuff. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah. he was that kind of kid. He wasn't, he's very bright, but not interested in school, um, a risk taker. And so he was experimenting um, with different substances in high school and stuff. And um, he ended up not graduating from high school, but he did get his GED. Mm. And honestly, in my opinion, I think a GED is just as good as a high school diploma. Mm-hmm. Because you can still go to college with a GED. So yeah. he was fine. And once you go to college, it doesn't really matter how you got there. <laughs> no, exactly. Exactly. And so he was 18 and he left the house after he got his GED. Basically, we kicked him out because he just wasn't doing what he needed to do in order to stay in my house. Mm-hmm. And he went up to Minneapolis and he likes Minneapolis because he hates the hot Texas summers. He would rather have the cold winters of Minneapolis than the, mm-hmm. the blazing hot Texas summers. It's also politically, it's a much more liberal environment than living in Texas, as you can imagine. And that's yeah. that's where he's at. That's where he feels more comfortable. Like I've got a great picture of him and his dad at the George Floyd Memorial. Mm-hmm. And he, that's where he wants to be, which is great. That's mm-hmm. fine. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think we get along a little bit better when we're not living in the same state. Cause we, <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say not living in the same house, but well, you that said too. the same yeah, state. The same state. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. We, I mean, we talk, we text. Mm-hmm. Um, he, it, it's just better when we're not too close. But so we had been talking, he'd actually been on my mind a lot. And it was, um, I want to say June 18th or June 19th of 2018. And I knew that he had not been feeling great. He, he had said that he'd been very tired and um, he went to the clinic. They tested him for various illnesses and couldn't find anything and said, if you're still not feeling well in a month, come back. Mm-hmm. And it was still going downhill for him. And honestly, my mom brain... I was thinking, just pull yourself together, 
get up and do what you need to do. I wasn't thinking Mm -hmm. that anything was wrong. Nobody Mm -hmm. ever does. Yeah. Well, I don't know. In my family, we always think something's wrong. But I don't know (laughs) if that's because we're Jewish or we're just like that. That's funny. (laughs) See, I would would never would have occurred to me. And I I hear this from other cancer parents, too, that Mm -hmm. nobody thinks that the kid has cancer. But he went back to this clinic and then they did a blood draw. They didn't in the previous visit. Mm -hmm. And based on his white count, the doctor said, I think you either have leukemia or lymphoma. So you need to get to an emergency room right now. And he told me this, Brendan told me this. And I was, I was angry because Mm -hmm. I thought, how can this doctor tell somebody this without doing more tests. I didn't realize at the time that when you've got a white cell count of 300,000 per microliter, that it can only be some kind of blood cancer. Mm-hmm. Because it was significant enough. Right. Like uh, a normal, a normal white count is 10 to 12,000. If you are in the ICU with like a really bad infection, I think you're looking at 20 to 25,000. Mm-hmm. So for 300,000, those are some kind of cancer cells in your bloodstream. Mm-hmm. So I bought a plane ticket and made a hotel reservation and I flew up there the next day. Now we do have a family on his father's side in Minneapolis. So I was in touch with them. And I didn't stay with them, but... um, Was Brendan alarmed at this point? Where was his, where did he fit into this, you know, story at this point? How nervous was he? He wasn't that nervous yet. Because what the doctors, the doctor said that leukemia is very curable. You know, over 95% curable. And honestly, now that that we've been through it, I think, you know, they're, they're... They're not going to lie to you, but they're also going to try not to scare you to death. I, I think because it, it it took, it was, it took a lot of work to cure him. So where, to answer your question, where his head was at, he felt that it was kind of a baby cancer is the way he described it. He was not that worried. He thought, I'm going to get through it. I'm going to get some chemo, which is going to suck, but. I'm going to survive and that's fine. So we stayed up there. I wanted to get him back to Dallas immediately because I had my, my home here, my husband, my job, my dogs, my other children. I mean, I wanted, I wanted to bring him back home and they said, no, he's not stable enough. He needs to be here for the first 30 day treatment period, which is called induction and it's intensive steroid and chemotherapy. And at the end of those 30 days, he should be in remission. There should be um, zero trace of leukemia in his bone marrow. So he seemed to be doing well. He, he had more energy. He was sitting up, uh, act, you know, being as active as you can be in the hospital. And we were actually planning to drive back because my daughter had driven up to help out. And the three of us were going to drive back together in her car. And, but on that 30 day bone marrow biopsy result, he still had 58% leukemia in his bone marrow. That meant that he still had a lot more treatment to go. So 
they did say we could come home. They, well, they said, if you're going to fly back to Dallas, you need to get on a plane tomorrow and to continue treatment or you're staying here for the next stage of treatment. It sounds like he could not have his treatment interrupted. Is that accurate? Oh, that's absolutely accurate. Yeah. That he was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia and it was specific to his B cells. And he also had a mutation called Philadelphia-like chromosome. So, and it's interesting because I know that leukemia is, is a pretty common, as the cancers go, it's pretty common. It is pretty common. Yes, it's not one of the rare cancers. And it's, it's good to have a common cancer because there's a, a lot of research has been done on how to, how to cure it. But mm-hmm. an acute type of leukemia, there's chronic and there's acute. Acute just comes on, um, you know, and it just hits you out of nowhere. And it mm-hmm. comes, comes at you guns blazing. And if an acute leukemia patient does not have any treatment, they're dead in three months. Oh, Because those goodness. cancer cells, they're like clogging all of your blood vessels. And so no mm. blood can get to your organs and your organs shut down and you die. Okay. So, so he's in the hospital and did you get to move him to Texas? We did. It was at the end of July. We got him on a plane and got home and we were hoping to do outpatient treatment that he could stay home and we could take him to the clinic for his chemo treatments and stuff. But unfortunately, the day that we got home, he started running a fever and I had to take him to Children's in Dallas. And he was, he was stuck there for three weeks. And how, what was going through your mind during that time? I was really struggling with being there 100% of the time, sleeping there. I just, I wanted to be there for him. And also being there for my husband and trying to do all of the things. And I wasn't working at all. I had taken FMLA leave. My, I will say my job, my employer was fantastic about this. It, you know, I, I took FMLA, which is you don't get paid, yeah. but that was okay. At least I knew that when I was ready to go back to work, my job would be there for me. But I was thinking, how am I going to go back to work? How in the world can I help my kid with cancer and work? There's no way. Were you worried about him? I mean, what was your level of concern for his health and and how he was going to fare? I really tried to not worry too much. It's almost like I you kind of tell yourself how to feel sometimes, I think. Mm. And I was telling myself to really keep it together and to not worry about it. I know what you're saying about deciding how to feel. And, and I feel like I've been successful in my life doing that a couple of times, but I don't know how I would do. You, you would do great. <laughs> I know you would, because, you know, as a mom, we, we kind of mm-hmm. have to. Because I always thought if I had some kind of devastating, if something devastating like this were to happen to any of my kids, I thought I would lose it. I thought it would just fall apart. And Mm -hmm. you can't Mm because they need you. Right. How did your relationship change or did it stay the same while he was in this intensive type of treatment? How, how did that go? Oh, it was, it was still, it was a bit strained. I'm not sure how to explain it. I don't think he really felt that he could talk to me about serious things. He befriended some of the staff and they told me, you know, that they would have a, a serious heart to heart 
sometimes, which is fine. I felt as long as he was talking to somebody about it, yeah, that was good. Um, I don't know. There's just so much going on. I, I don't know how how a young adult could successfully handle a tough situation yeah. like that. Yeah, it's and it so sounds hard. like. I guess the impression I'm getting is that your relationship with him has been complex for a while. Yeah, it has. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know he loves me. It's just complicated. That's a good way to put it. (laughs) We don't have storybook version, version lives. And, and sometimes it's, it's not easy. It's not clear cut. Yeah. I just felt that my job was to be there for him. And really every, every, any patient going through a serious illness mm-hmm. like this and a long hospitalization, mm-hmm. they need an advocate. They need somebody who's going to be the go-between bet- with the social worker and all of the, um, the medical staff, um, billing issues. Of course, I handled all of that. Um, we were very lucky that he's still on our insurance and it didn't affect us financially like I've seen some cancer families be affected. It it can just be devastating for some families, but we were very lucky. And and during this time when he was he was immunocompromised, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So because and, and the reason I'm asking this is if, you know, we're going to talk about your young adult novel stuck, mm-hmm. which is about cancer and about right vaccines. So right. at this point, when he was really compromised, what was your feeling about vaccinations and illness and bugs flying around? I mean, you know, germ bugs. Sure. Well, I mean, any any parent with an immunocompromised kid is going to be very concerned about that mm-hmm. because the chemo and he didn't have a lot of radiation. He didn't have radiation until he had his um, stem cell transplant last year. But all of that just wipes out your immune system completely. And any vaccines that you had, childhood vaccinations, they're completely gone too. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's all gone. So you don't have any type of insurance. You have no barrier. Right. Wow. So, and I've asked him, because he's still, he's back up in Minneapolis now, living on his own. And he goes to his monthly clinic appointments where they check his blood and make sure that everything is going okay. And I've asked him to check with the doctor and see when he'll be ready to get his vaccines again. Mm. Um, And last I heard a month or two ago, it's not time yet. I'm not sure why. I'm not sure what they're looking for, but he's not ready. Well, actually, I think I do know. After his stem cell transplant, which is the same thing as a bone marrow transplant. Oh, okay. Um, he is still on immunosuppressant drugs because it it helps um, with graft versus host disease. Okay. Because just like and like a solid organ transplant, um, you've got to take these drugs so that your body doesn't fight the, mm-hmm. the new right. I'm familiar with that organ or bone marrow, whatever. And I think I don't think he can be vaccinated while he's still taking those. And when is he supposed to be finished with those? Hopefully this year sometime. So, I mean, it's, it's important to note because when we first talked about this, I, I knew that this story was about, you know, a young adult getting leukemia, but it's really recent. Yeah. 
And it, it is. Yeah. I mean, and you, and the, <laughs> the specter of COVID is also kind of I hanging know. around too. Ugh. Does he, does he think about that? Yes. So do I. Yeah. I, I try, I try not to think about it too much because I have no control over it. Right. Yes. Yes. I, I can't, I have no control over, you know, what he does, mm-hmm. especially since he's not in my orbit anymore. He's far away. Yeah. But. Did you, were you pro-vaccine before Oh, he got back Ill? to the vaccines. Of course. Absolutely. When, when my children were born in the nineties, I, there was never any doubt in my mind that I would vaccinate them. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't feel like I am um, blindly following the medical community and just doing what they tell me to do. I really believe that they're effective in, mm-hmm. um, Preventing childhood illnesses. I mean, why should I put my kids at risk for getting the the measles or a whooping cough or yeah. um, diphtheria or even chickenpox, any of this stuff? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I wasn't even aware of this anti-vax movement until I want to say around 2010 when there was a gentleman that I worked with and he made a comment to me about, oh, vaccines cause my son's autism. And it, you know, I did a double take. I'm like, you believe that? You think that's true? <laughs> and he said, oh, I know it's true. And at that time, I was not familiar with um, Andrew Wakefield, you know, the British doctor who did the, who initially brought that, this. Ah, uh, um, yes, his article, right? Wasn't the, it? The article yeah. in The Lancet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he wrote the article, but then it's been debunked because he did a study that wasn't valid and, and nothing was peer reviewed or anything. Mm-hmm. But, um, but it really caught on. I mean, that, yeah. that was sort of, that became a very strong argument. And a lot of people right. put their, their um, they backed that up. Right, exactly. And I do think that there's always been people who, who might be somewhat conspiracy theorists, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And who- There are some who, in my family. Yeah. <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> and who, who- don't believe in modern medicine. They would rather do things um, the ancient way, very holistically natural healing and stuff. And it's like, okay, that's fine. But I think that with Andrew Wakefield's article and then also with social media, it has become a lot easier for these people to find their tribe mm-hmm. and to find um, to find people who will support the things that they're saying. Mm-hmm. Right. It's kind of like uh, you, you you can always find and on social media, you can always find someone to support what you're saying. Yeah. Right. It doesn't matter what it is. Mm-hmm. You'll find something. Mm-hmm. Anyway, in 2010, that was when I first heard this. And then I after just seeing more and more of this stuff on on social media, I would be like, I, I really don't think that's true. And I I really believe that the vast majority of medical professionals want to help people. Yeah. You know, the doctors and the nurses and the um, the technicians and the child life people, everybody who helped take care of my son, they wanted him to get well. Mm-hmm. That's that's what they were in it for. I believe that. Yeah. So, OK, so then you're in 2019. Is that right? 2019 now? Or is he still in the hospital in 2018? He's still in the hospital in 2018. He gets... Um, discharged. And so then we're on outpatient after that. But in the fall of 2018, we find out that the chemo was not working. 
And we had to go to plan B, which was CAR T cell therapy. And that is a really, really cool immunotherapy. So they harvested or collected his T cells, sent them to a lab, which was also at a pharmaceutical company, Novartis. And they modified the cells to target his leukemia cells. Interesting. And then they infused these supercells back into his body. And 30 days afterwards, he was, um, he was in remission. Wow. There was amazing. no leukemia. It was great. And three weeks after infusion, he told me, I am finally starting to feel like myself again. Because he wasn't taking any chemo or anything else. He had been on chemo constantly, some form of chemo, since June. Mm -hmm. And this was in January 2019. So it had been, you know, a good amount of time. So then how long after that did he start to kind of come back to being who he was and, and the worry kind of lifted a little bit? No, there was more to it. <laughs> we're, we're not there yet. Plan B didn't work. We found out that the... um since he had B-cell leukemia, the CAR T-cells were going after the B-cell leukemia cells, but he also has healthy B-cells. And what they saw was that the healthy B-cells were starting to come back, which is a bad sign. Now, he was still in remission, and it was actually a deep remission, which was really good. So he was in a good place to go to transplant. But we found out in April of 2019 that the CAR T was not going to work long-term. And so they wanted to get him to transplant within a couple of months. So he had his transplant on June 28th of uh, 2019. And that was, that was when he needed full body radiation and a lot of chemotherapy, basically to get rid of all the bone marrow that was in his body. And um, his new cells were actually stem cells from donated umbilical cords, which I thought mm. was very interesting because he didn't have a hundred, he didn't have a good match for bone marrow. So he went to, to the cord cells. So he was in the hospital with the transplant for 51 days. What was your feeling when, when you got the bad news that those hadn't worked? Did your belief in the system or that he was going to be okay falter at all? Well, sure. Once you get to plan C, and you wonder, what's next? Was, was he changing at all emotionally? Oh, he was pissed. He was angry. Oh. He thought everything was going well. Before we got that, um, the news about the, the car T-cells not working, he was planning on moving out and getting an apartment in a, in a small college town. And it's still in Texas and everything. You know, he was, he was starting to to look to the future. And then, then we got this news and he was not happy. Couldn't blame him. Yeah. Okay. So take me to the next stage in this, this, this medical journey. It was really tough because Brendan was not following my advice about anything. Mm -hmm. Like how I thought the things that I thought he should be doing in order to re recover. Mm-hmm. So we got to the point again where he needed to leave the house. He was, this was also when we saw that he really was having some addiction problems and 
happily, he, when he moved back to Minneapolis, he checked himself into rehab, mm-hmm. which was really good. That's, and that's another thing, though, because the whole mental health care for a young person going through, you know, a year and a half of cancer treatment at a children's hospital, I think that that could have been done a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And I, I asked for help. I talked to his team. I talked to the psychologist there at the hospital. And I really, I really begged them, please help me with this. And they're like, well, he's an adult. He's making his own decisions. Did you see it happening before it erupted the addiction? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, because he was 21 at this point. He turned 21 in May of 2019 when he was preparing for his transplant. And when he was discharged, he could go buy whatever he wanted. <laughs> and I remember the Wednesday before Thanksgiving of 2019, I had decided that Brennan needed to manage his medications on his own instead of me sorting all of the pills that he needed to take every day because I was starting to go back to work into the office that he could do it because this was something he was going to have to manage for the rest of his life anyway. Mm -hmm. So he should start doing it now. And he could also drive himself down to clinic once a week. He didn't need me to chauffeur him. And he didn't like those things. And so. Do you know why? Do you think, do you have a sense of why he didn't like it? I'm really not sure. He said, I think he kind of got used to me doing everything for him. Do you think he liked this being taken care of? I think so. But he also likes to tell people how independent he is. So how much longer will he be on that kind of regimen? Um, I'm really not sure. I, at this point, I don't even ask him anymore because it's he needs to be in charge of it. He needs to be in control of it. So I don't know which... Um, medications he has been weaned off of. I I think he might just still be taking the immunosuppressant to help with the GVHD. So when you think about this, it's so close. I feel like it happened so recently. I mean, a lot has happened in 2020, to be sure. Right. So, I mean, we've all lived centuries by now. Right. But but it's really not too long ago that he was first sick, Mm -hmm. that everything just started to escalate and that he had a couple of really serious, uh, you know, turns where you didn't know how he was going to do. And now he's, you know, ostensibly stable. But would you say that your relationship with him now is, where is it compared to where it was before he got sick? I want to say it's better. We were pretty good before he got sick, but now since he's sober, that's helping a lot because I mean- he he just has a hard time with substances. So it's it's much better now yeah. that he is sober and that he's embracing the program and that he's owning his own health. And it it mm-hmm. is better. He has called me in the recent weeks just like just asking for advice, not even asking about, you know, can I have some money or something, but uh, you know, hey, mm-hmm. I wanna start cooking what's the best way for me to start cooking? And it's like, I'm like, that's really cute. That's really sweet. Mm. I love that he, it feels like he respects me 
a little bit more now. Huh. That's really nice to hear. I wonder, I wonder if he will soften up, if the relationship can soften up. I think it up. probably will. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, addiction in families is a monster. Mm-hmm. Did he have any of those signs when he was younger before he got sick? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. What's your impression or understanding about addiction that maybe you didn't know when you were younger? I think it's more of a disease than a choice. I don't think I was ever sure about that before, but he couldn't have gotten through this without, without the help of the people at the rehabilitation center. And there certainly wasn't anything I could do about it either. He really needed to, to make that decision on his own that he needed to get help. And it really, man, it really changes a person's personality, doesn't it? It's a lifelong. That's a lifelong. You know, it's in, the cancer, the leukemia yeah. is going to be gone, it looks like. It looks like he's going to be good. But the addiction is something he'll always have to face. It is. It is. So yeah. Yeah. how did you decide and, and when did you decide that you needed to write about childhood cancer and vaccinations? Well, there's a lot of conversation in the cancer family community about that stuff, because I remember driving down to clinic with him one day and we heard on the radio that there was a measles outbreak in Texas, some county in Texas. And he said, is that close to us? And I said, um, I'm, I'm not sure, but I, it turned out it was in the Houston area and we're north of Dallas. So that wasn't a problem. Um, but it, it worries him because the anti-vax movement mm -hmm. has gotten so large and people are all about, you know, you can't tell me what to do for, uh, for my child. It's like, well, but you, you do it to protect all these other children too. Right. So, so when did you get the idea for the book? Let, why don't you talk a little bit about this young adult novel? So the book is called Stuck. And it's because, um, you know, you have to get stuck when you get a vaccine. And also the main character, Cassidy, feels stuck between her family and what she is starting to believe is the truth, as opposed to what she had been taught by her anti-vax mother growing up. So Cassidy and Angie are best friends. And they're in their junior year of high school and Angie is diagnosed with leukemia. So I used, you know, a big chunk of Brendan's story as far as the treatment and everything. We talk about CAR T cell therapy because I, I really wanted to get that in there because it is really cool. <laughs> I mean, because kids who you've got to be in remission in order to have a bone marrow transplant, but it's very difficult to get a kid into remission if chemo isn't working anyway. You just got to blast him and blast him and blast him with chemo. And sometimes the leukemia is going to hide from the chemo, but the CAR-T gets rid of all of it. So a lot of physicians, a lot of oncologists use it as a stepping stone to bone marrow transplant. So, I mean, it's good for a lot of reasons. So I wanted to get that story in there. And then also I just... I really just have a problem personally with the anti-vax and anti-science and anti-medicine movement. So that's why I wanted to talk about that as well. So um, the, the friend, Angie, who has leukemia, 
is in the hospital waiting for her new cells to come back, her CAR T cells. And it's Thanksgiving and unknowingly Cassidy was exposed to the measles in Whole Foods. And she ends up infecting her friend who dies. So of course, Cassidy is devastated and she feels that she, she killed her best friend. And again, it's because her friend was so immunocompromised and she couldn't fight the measles. And people are immunocompromised mm-hmm. for a lot of different reasons. It's not only, um, you know, cancer treatment, but if they've got some immune disorder, that puts them at risk as well. And Cassidy is so devastated, she actually finds a doctor who will vaccinate her, even though he knows he's not supposed to because she's a minor and she doesn't have parental consent. And so then we get into the relationship a little bit with Cassidy and her anti-vax mom. And um, we'll just see how it all plays out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So how was it? How did it feel to write this? Of course, it's really emotional because I was I was retelling the story that we had just gone through. And whenever I explain the story to people and I say that, you know, I kill off this character. They're like, oh, my gosh, you killed her? And it's like, well, it's reality. It's just devastating how many, mm, how many yeah. kids do pass away from cancer. And I think the public should understand that and should take precautions when it comes to possibly making things worse for for people. It's kind of, it's kind of like the anti-mask thing too. Right. Right. I see the similarities there. What would you say that's not in the book explicitly, but to an anti-vaxxer? That's hard to know. I mean, because I think, you know what, I I think it's more like with anything, you're not going to make somebody change their mind, but I think a good way to approach a difficult topic like this is instead of trying to convince them of your own ideas and thoughts, just start asking them questions. Like, well, why do you, why do you believe that? Why do you think it's all about big pharma and it's just about money? And why, why do you think that doctors and nurses are only in it for the money and not to help people? Mm-hmm. Have you spent any time talking with people who are anti-vax yet? No, I'm afraid to. <laughs> They might come for you. I know. know? But you know what? I accept that. That's okay. Yeah. It's all right. As part of, you know, getting the word out about this book, I have been reaching out to a bunch of pro-vaccine Facebook groups and advocates, and I am having people reply and they're interested in talking to me. And I explain this is a young adult novel because I really hope to you know, reach young people and get them to understand that vaccines are safe and effective and not vaccinating, not being vaccinated can be really harmful to other people. So like um, there was a young man who really inspired me to write this novel. His name is Ethan Lindenberger and he's in Ohio. And when he turned 18, he started looking into being vaccinated because his mom was very um, adamantly anti-vax. 
And he's like, well, why are, he was wondering to himself, why are vaccines bad? Are they bad? And he decided mm-hmm. when he turned 18 to, to get vaccinated against his mother's wishes. So interesting that vaccines in this case are the wrong thing to do in his family. I was totally willing to get revaccinated because last time I got vaccines, you know, MMR and stuff, I was a child. Mm-hmm. So my, um, I talked to my doctor about it and they, they drew some blood and they checked the titers to see if, to see if the antibodies were still there. And they were, which That's I think amazing. is kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. Because I mean, I'm 54 years old. So this would have been in the late sixties or early seventies when I received my vaccines and, but I'm still immune because I wanted to be careful for my son, you know? And, and not potentially infect him with anything. Right. And it's very relevant now. Now there's also this political side and this um, propaganda side right. about whether or not a, a vaccine will be safe or wh- whether it's being rushed out or not. I know. But I was talking to my doctor about this. I recently had all of my annual checkups and everything. And she said that the vaccine is really only going to work if 70% of the population are willing to be vaccinated because that's when herd immunity kicks in. And she doesn't think people are going to do that willingly. Oh boy. Right. So all this rush to get a vaccine out, if people don't take it, it won't really help. Right. Right. I will say though, that about childhood cancer until your own family has to go through caring for a a cancer patient, you really have no idea how prevalent it is. There are so many Mm -hmm. families who have a child diagnosed with cancer and many families still, I mean, not all kids survive, like I mentioned. And I just, I have a hard time understanding why you can have two kids with the same diagnosis going through the same treatment and one survives and the other one doesn't. I mean, it's still, it's still not a, not a science. Well, of course it's a science, Mm. but I guess cancers, they're just different for everybody. Everybody's body um, reacts differently to the treatment and the illness. So Mm -hmm. where can, where can people find your book, stuck and more about you? Um, So my website is motinabooks.com, M-O-T-I-N-A books.com. And there will be um, information about the book and links to various resellers there. While it's certainly available on Amazon, we encourage everybody to support their independent bookstores because they need our support. They really do. What's your hope for this book? Who who would you really like to read this? I, w- I would like to reach a younger audience, maybe early 20s, um, late teens, so that they they can be informed and make up their own mind and talk to their physicians and find out the truth about, you know, the safety and effectiveness of vaccines and that they're not dangerous. For the vast majority of people. Sure, there are some people who are truly allergic to an ingredient in a vaccine, but those are the people who shouldn't be vaccinated, right? Mm -hmm. Which is why the rest of the population should be to protect them. Mm -hmm. But overall, they're, they're very safe. 
And, you know, this last, this last moment of our interview, I wanted to ask you what, what's your hope for your relationship with Brendan and you? Oh, I, I want us to be close. Of course. I mean, I've got two older children. Nick is going to be 30 in November and Natalie is 26. And we have, I have a great relationship with my adult children and my granddaughters. And I want that with him as well. Mm -hmm. Definitely. He doesn't have to live, you know, down the street like the other two do. That's okay. I'm not going to make him, you know, move back to Texas if he doesn't like it. But I I (laughs) definitely want to, you know, be a part of his life and, and, have a good relationship with him. Yeah. Do you think he knows that you you love him a lot? I do think so. Because I tell him a lot. And I mean, I dropped everything I was doing and I changed my life to be with him during this time. And I would do it again. Most mothers would. Don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. But sure. I mean, that doesn't take away from your choice. Right. Well, thank you. Thank you for being my guest and for sharing the story. And I'm really excited about Stuck and to see what what kind of effect it has and, and what it adds to the conversation. Me too. I hope it does add something to the conversation. I hope it makes people think and talk about it and not fight about it. Just yeah. talk about it. And yeah. Thank you so much. Roni, thank you for having me. I, it means a lot to me to be a guest on your podcast. You have really fascinating guests. I love listening to your podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad you were able to, to be on it. And I, I think your this story is very unique. And I think the fact that you're doing something about your experience is also really important. Thank you. Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode, photos, and other episodes you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can connect with me and learn more about episodes on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram also. Just search for my name, Ronit Plank, R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K, and you will find all the updates. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe and also rate and review so other people can find it. Thank you so much for listening. 